morning. My name's Robert. I teach with Alan Branch or Dr. Branch up in Kansas City. I'm on the faculty up there with him, and it is good to be with you this morning. I've long heard and known of your church, of your gospel work here, and how God has mightily used Emmanuel Baptist Church to lead people into a personal relationship with him. And so it is my honor and my joy to be with you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to open it and turn to what will be a very familiar passage to many of you. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 28, I would call your attention to an event that we are all familiar with, I think, that happened this week. The passing of the great Dr. Billy Graham. As we have reflected on this week and learned the news, we have heard story after story after story of lives impacted for the gospel of people who've come to faith in Jesus Christ because of what Billy Graham did. And so in light of his ministry, in light of what he did and what defined him, I want to call your attention today to the passage that stands at the end of Matthew's gospel. The passage by which Matthew concludes the last words of Jesus that Matthew records. The passage known as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. I don't know what your custom is, but I'm going to ask you to do something that might be different for you this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus has designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Here's a curious phrase, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, speak to us now. Call us, each and every one of us, to be disciple makers. I ask this all in the name that is above every name, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I read a story this week, and I want to open this morning by sharing it with you. It's about a Baptist pastor who lived in London, south of London. He was ministering in his church, and at the close of the Sunday morning service, a man stood up, perhaps in the back of the sanctuary, or apparently in the back of the sanctuary. And he said, excuse me, pastor, I would like to share a testimony. Pastor, getting a little nervous, because you never know what someone's going to say when they do something like that, said, you have three minutes. The man proceeded with his story. I just moved into this area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives and I was walking down 
George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney, going from the business area out to the colonial area. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. I called a friend, and thank God, he was a Christian. And he led me to Christ. The church was encouraged. A few days later, the Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide, Australia. And 10 days later, he was in the middle of a meeting, a three-day series of meetings in a Baptist church there. And a woman came up to him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. She said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple months back, I was visiting some friends and doing some last-minute shopping down on George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? I was disturbed by these words. When I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me. I sought out the pastor and he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you, I am a Christian. The London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard basically the exact same testimony. He then flew to preach in Mount Pleasant Church in Perth, Australia, where his teaching series was over. When his teaching series was, was over, the senior elder of that church took him out to a meal, and he asked the elder how he became a Christian. I grew up in this church from the age of 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus. I just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, do you know that you were to go to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years knowing that I did not have a relationship with Jesus. And he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was soon speaking at a Keswick convention in the Lake District. And here he heard three more testimonies from elderly pastors who 25 years prior had met that same man down on George Street, haunted by that same question, excuse me, sir, if you were to die tonight, do you know that you would go to heaven? Similar uh, conference he was speaking at of missionaries, same testimony as he visited with some of them 15 to 25 years earlier, encountering this same man down 
on George Street. At one point, he was speaking at a conference of 5,000 missionaries in the nation of India, in a remote part of northeast India. At the end, the head missionary took him to his humble home for a simple meal. He asked, how as a Hindu did you come to Christ? I grew up in a very privileged position. I worked in the Indian diplomatic mission, and I traveled the world. I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin. I would be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. One period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing some last-minute shopping down on George Street, laden with toys and clothes for my children. As I walked down the street, a courteous little white-haired man stepped out in front of me and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, sir. Are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but this question disturbed me. I got back my ta- to my town, sought out the Hindu priest. He couldn't help me. But he advised me to satisfy my curiosity. I should go and talk to the missionary in the mission home at the end of the road. That was good advice because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am today by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries who have together led over 100,000 people to Christ. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to open with a question and I'll later close with a question. But the question I want to open with this morning is this. Does God expect us? Does God expect you to be sharing the gospel? Does God want you, church, to be out in your community, out in the streets, out in your place of work, and telling people, attempting to talk to people about Jesus Christ? I want us to explore today Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And there's one word, one in English, it's two words, two words that dominate these verses. There's one main command verb from which the rest of these verses get their main idea or their big idea. And it is found in verse 19. It is these two words, make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? I want to ask six questions of this text and I want to see the answer to them today. First of all, notice this. I called attention to it just a minute ago as I was reading verse 16. Verse 16. And here I want us to see in verses 16 and 17 what keeps us from making disciples. But the 11 disciples, now there's a note of sadness there. Always prior to this, there have been 12 But here in Matthew's gospel for the first time, there are 11. Judas is gone. He's dead. He's betrayed the Lord. Proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated in chapter 26. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back. But I want you to meet me at this mountain. 
in Galilee when I come back. They didn't understand it at the time. They understand it now. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Some were doubtful. Now that's curious, isn't it? Here they are. This is the first encounter of all of them together around the bodily resurrected Jesus. They have had the report that Jesus has come back. They are encountering a man who just a few days prior they had seen hanging on a tree. They had seen the ground split open. They had seen what felt like heaven itself shutting itself off from earth. There they were encountering the resurrected Christ. And Matthew includes this aside, some doubted. Now why would they doubt? Prophecy had been fulfilled in their very presence. Why on earth would Matthew include this detail about them doubting? Did you know this is only the second time in Matthew's gospel that he alludes to doubt? The first occurs in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Look back in Matthew 14. It's a familiar story to many of you, I'm sure. Matthew chapter 14, it's the story of Jesus walking on the water and calling out to Peter. And you can pick up the story in verse 28. And here's what Jesus says to Peter. Peter says to Jesus as he sees Jesus out there upon the water during the night, terrified. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is your command, if, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, Peter became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? So very often, we like Peter, we like the apostles, Look around us. See the circumstances around us. And we get an uneasy feeling in the pit of our stomach. As you come to the Great Commission passage there, yes, you read of the resurrection, but what happened immediately prior to it? The Jewish council met with the Roman leaders or the uh, Roman guards who had been there at the tomb. And they said, don't tell anybody what happened. They paid them some money. And they said, go out, we'll handle the government, don't worry about it. Tell everybody his disciples stole the body. Those apostles, those early disciples had seen Jesus. They had followed Jesus. They had seen his teaching. But they'd also seen Jesus go to the cross. They'd also seen or heard of the the Jewish leaders still conspiring against the followers of Jesus. And there in the back of their minds, some of them had to wonder as they viewed the bodily resurrected Jesus, is it still worth it to follow him? What will this cost 
me. Friends, it is perfectly normal. It is perfectly natural. When you begin to consider sharing the gospel with others, to get a little uneasy, to get a little scared. It happens to, apparently, even some of the apostles. But friends, while it is okay to be scared, it is not okay to stay there. Look with me at what Jesus does in response to their fear. And I want us to see this morning not only what keeps us from sharing the gospel, but why we should share the gospel, why we should seek to make disciples anyway. Notice as well here in the text, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus looks at the apostles, he looks at the disciples, and he says to them, I have all the authority. You know how we know Jesus has all the authority? He's back from the dead. Think about it. How many people do you know who have died who came back from the dead after three days and three nights? Anyone? Anyone know anybody who did that? Nobody in this room knows anybody who did that. He's saying, look, heaven itself has stepped in in me. And so therefore all the authority of heaven rests upon me. As a boy, I like cartoons. Anyone in the room like cartoon shows? Any adults in the room still like cartoon shows? I won't tell anybody, I promise. Y'all are all looking towards me, kids. No, I'm teasing. But I, I liked a cartoon, and there was this really cheesy cartoon when I was a kid. But, but I still remember it to this day. It was the cartoon, and they made movies off of it. It was He-Man. Anyone in the room remember He-Man? All right, I re yeah, yeah, I see a few hands. Okay, if you haven't seen He-Man, you're not missing much. But... I was a kid, I liked He-Man, and I don't remember much of He-Man. So if you're a He-Man expert, forgive me if I get some of the details wrong. But in general, what happened in every single episode of He-Man was He-Man had this sword. And somehow, someway, he always seemed to get separated from his sword. And then the bad guy, I think his name was Skeletor, would show up and he'd start beating up on He-Man. And He-Man be in so much trouble. But then at the climax of the show, what would happen? Somehow He-Man would be reunited with his sword. And he would hold up his sword over his head. And you know what he'd say? He'd say, I have the power. And yeah, that, I, I wouldn't, yeah, anyway, I have the power. And he would clean house. I mean, no one stood in his way. He had all the power he needed to do everything he needed to do to fulfill the mission that otherwise he could not fulfill. Friends, sharing the gospel, making disciples is sometimes a scary task. But God has given you in the person of Jesus Christ all the authority, all the power, all the strength you need in order to do the mission he is calling each and every one of us to. You see, God gave all the authority 
to Jesus. All the cosmos come to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. And friends, let me tell you something. Given that Jesus has all the authority, given that there is coming a day where each and every one of us will stand before him, the question must be asked, what are you going to do with the mission that he's calling you to? He's calling each and every one of us to the mission to make disciples. See, we are supposed to make disciples because when we belong to Jesus, Jesus is empowering us to make disciples. So first we see here in the text what prevents us from making disciples, what prevents us from going to the lost. It's our doubts, it's our fears. Second, we see here in the text why we should go anyway. Because Jesus is saying to, and it's Jesus who's the Lord of heaven and of earth. Third, third, I want you to see here in the text where we should make disciples. Where we should make disciples. Notice how verse 18 starts, two little letter word here, go, go. Now our English Bibles often render that as a straight command. Like it is, but in the Greek, this is actually a participle. And as a participle, what that means is it's modifying the main verb. And the main verb is make disciples. So we see here, so, so perhaps another way of rendering this idea of go as a participle describing making disciples would be as you are going. As you are going. Friends, where should you be seeking to make disciples? It's everywhere you're going. Everywhere you're going, everyone you're encountering needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Everyone you meet, you want to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no one, nowhere, who is too far gone for you to share the gospel with them. Now you say, Robert, that's going to make me a weirdo. Well, yeah, sometimes that does happen. I'm not sure I'm cut out to be the little man on George Street handing out tracts saying, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? That's just not my temperament. Well, you can change, but that's no teasing. There, but that's not all. That's not the only way. There's many ways we can go about making disciples. I have a friend, and I, I took a trip. I take a, a team from the seminary every year down to New Orleans at Mardi Gras, which sounds a little risky. But we're going down there. We're going down there to share the gospel with people. We set up on the street. We're handing out tracts. We're talking to people about Jesus. But invariably, every year we go down there, we stop with a friend of mine in Little Rock who owns uh, some restaurants there in Little Rock. And we, we go to lunch with him and he's working with his team. And my, our, our students there get to see him working with his team at these series of restaurants in Little Rock. He's a friend of mine from, from college. 
And so anyway, every year as we're there and he's working his restaurants, I'm warning my guys, my students there at the seminary to meet him and meet him for a reason. Because when they meet him, they're meeting a man who is taking his Christianity into the workplace in a way that brings about in his workplace people who don't know Jesus coming to know Jesus. He, works, he owns a series of kind of nicer burger restaurants in, uh, in the Little Rock area. And so as he's there, as he's working with these, these guys behind the counter, he's encouraging them. He's sharing with them. He's talking to them. He's bringing them back to his house. He's playing basketball with them. And all the while, he's talking to them just naturally and conversationally about the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. It's as he is going, he's seeking to make disciples in your workplace at the restaurant after church today, wherever you are, wherever you go, be one who is making disciples. So we see here in the text, we see here in the text what prevents us from making disciples. We see here in the text why we should still make disciples. We see here in the text where we should make disciples. Fourth, I want us to see here in the text who we should make disciples. Who we should make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, continuing on. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I've already alluded to this. Who needs to be made a disciple? It's everybody. It's everybody. It's every nation. It's the Anglo. It's the African American. It's the Hispanic. It's the Asian. It's everybody. The Arabian. Nobody is too far gone to be made a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't care if they're a member of ISIS. Jesus died for them and he wants to make them his disciple. Jesus is after everybody, and he's after everybody through us. Jesus wants to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. And so we too should be about making disciples of everyone. Fifth, fifth here in the text, we see, we see who should make disciples. We see how we should make disciples disciples how we should make disciples and we see here in the text a twofold process by which we make disciples how we should make disciples go therefore to all nations uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you Baptizing, teaching. Baptizing, teaching. We just saw a beautiful picture of a young lady this morning being baptized. Why do we baptize people? What is baptism? Literally in the Greek, the word just means to immerse, to dunk, to plunge. When a ship was sunk in Greco-Roman literature, it was baptizoed. Went under the water. Now, why do things go under the water? Why is this our ritual? 
Romans chapter 6 explains to us why. As we are buried with Christ in baptism unto death, we go under the water saying, we are dead. He raised, we are raised up to a whole new life with Christ. And there's a whole new life that starts over with Christ. When we are baptized, we are saying our old identity is over. And we have a whole new identity in Jesus Christ. Baptism is the picture of the inauguration of the starting of the Christian life. The reason people get baptized is to say, I belong to Jesus. That's why we get baptized. It is that public declaration, I have repented, I am not who I used to be, I now belong to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. And then there's the second side of this. There's baptism which inaugurates the Christian life. And then there is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice what Jesus didn't say here. Jesus did not say teaching them to read about all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to know about all that I have commanded you. Do you know what Jesus said? He said teaching them to observe. Teaching them to do. You see the Christian life begins in a moment that is pictured in baptism. But it continues on from that point forward for the rest of our lives. As we learn to observe, as we learn to do all that Jesus commands us to do. Picture with me, if you would, a newborn baby. Now, that's a kind of fun picture, assuming they're not screaming at you. But, but uh, it is, right? You got your parents there. They've brought this newborn, beautiful little baby home. And they come into the house, and they lay this newborn little baby down in the crib. And they've given the baby blankets and they've got the baby nicely swaddled and it's there in the crib just as good as things could be in this beautiful nursery. Everything's just the way it should. And they walk over to the door and they slowly turn out the lights and they leave the nursery and as they're leaving they say, Bye, we love you. We'll see you in 20 years or so. That's, that's not how it's supposed to work, is it? No. Yes, there's a point where that baby is born, but that, there, there's a whole process of raising that child up. In the exact same way, as Christians, we are to be about not only leading people to the point where they confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, where they confess the name of the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in water baptism, but where we also come to the point of, from that inauguration point, leading them and leading ourselves as well, leading one another to observe all that Jesus would have us to do. That's what church is for. That's what this place is for. Is to help with the process of us each becoming Jesus' 
disciple. So how do we make disciples? We make disciples through the starting point, through leading people to that point of salvation where they come out and they confess, I belong to Jesus. And that's baptism. And then we make disciples through a lifelong process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. So we've seen in the text what prevents us from making disciples. We've seen in the text why we should still make disciples because Jesus is king and all authority is his. We see in the text... um, Not only why we should make disciples, we also see in the text where we should make disciples everywhere. We see who we should make disciples of, everyone. We see how we make disciples by leading people to salvation in Jesus and then by teaching them to follow Jesus everywhere and in everything. And then last and finally we see in the text for how long we should make disciples. For how long we should make disciples. Verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The process of making disciples is a lifelong process. It is a church-long process. Every generation of believers from the first to today till Jesus returns has the same mission. And the mission is this, make disciples. Jesus said, I will be with you. In what context? In the context of making disciples. For how long? Until the end of the age. Until he comes back. Friends, If this afternoon, Jesus were to show up and he were to call his church home with him, would you be ready? Would you be doing what he expects you to be doing? Which is making disciples. You see, the process of making disciples isn't just for pastors. It isn't just for church leaders. It is a process that is required and expected of every single one of us. How sad it would be to get into heaven, having confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but not to be able to say that anyone is there with you because you brought them. Eight months later, that London pastor was preaching once again in Sydney. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of an elderly little white-haired man who handed out tracts down on George Street. He replied, yes, sir, I do. His name is Mr. Jenner, although I don't think he does it anymore because he is so frail and elderly. Two nights later, they went to meet him in his little apartment They knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down, made them some tea. He was so frail that he was slopping the tea into the saucer as his hands shook. The London pastor sat there, 
and told him all these accounts from the previous three years where he'd been journeying the world of folks who'd come to know Christ. This little man sat there with tears running down his cheeks. He told them his story. I was a sailor on an Australian warship. I was living a wicked life. In a crisis, I really hit the wall. One of my colleagues to whom I gave literal hell was there to help me. He led me to Jesus and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God for saving me. I promised that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength, I did that. Sometimes I was ill and couldn't do it, but I made up for it the days I missed at other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I've done this for over 40 years. In my retirement year, years, the best place to do it was George Street, where I would see hundreds of people each day. I got a lot of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tract. In the 40 years I've been doing this, only a handful of times have someone come back to me to say, or was I able to, to lead someone all the way to salvation. Friends, that little white-haired man was completely consumed with the last words of Jesus, making disciples. As we consider the legacy of Billy Graham, we see another man who was completely consumed with making disciples. Friends, I want to challenge you today to make disciples. But you can't make a disciple of someone who you don't already know as your disciple maker. That little question of that white-haired old man on George Street is a haunting one, isn't it? Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, madam. Are you saved? If you died tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven? If you don't know, in just a moment, I'm going to be here up here at the front. I trust other counselors will be up here at the front with me as well. We'd love to talk with you today about how you can know that you're going to heaven, that you're right with God. Good morning, Emmanuel. We are going to start today with baptism. It is the uh, most exciting way I believe, to start a worship service. And I want to introduce you to Delilah Ballard. I have had an opportunity to talk with her and meet her, and she is incredible. She, she's an incredible young lady, uh, has experienced so many things already in, in her life that I'm excited to see what God's going to do in her life. Today is her birthday, and uh, it was, yes, we can clap for a birthday. Uh, <laughs> It was one year ago today on her birthday that she got saved. And we're so excited to see her follow with the testimony of baptism today. Delilah, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. Awesome. Well, upon that profession of faith, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. 